0: Welcome to Cairn Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Cairn University. On this episode of the Cairn Commons podcast, we are going to be airing content that was captured in January of 2021 during Karen's World Reach Week conference. Our speaker at that time was alum Kevin King, and you will hear a really interesting dialogue. I found it very interesting between Kevin and me on the subjects of missions, the evolution of missions, the church, and his work in particular, as well as a couple of other Interesting musings that we get into. This content, as I mentioned, was captured back in January. And during that time, he was our speaker. And for more information on World Reach Week, you can go to cairn.edu slash event slash World Reach Week. This is something that comes up each year and is worth checking out. I am very pleased today to be joined by Kevin King, who graduated from the university in 1990. 1990. His wife, Jeannie Rose, is also a graduate. A few years later, he already revealed the location of their ceremony. It was uh, (laughs) what, what? It was right Right. on campus, on the pond, right at the pond there. We should have probably thought of business opportunities, right? For that, uh, hiring out weddings and that sort I know. of thing. You should it's just have. We got in before; <laughs> we were grandfathered in before you guys even thought of that. Right, right. On location, <laughs> That's at right. your University's pond. Yeah. Uh, well, Kevin is our special guest for the podcast today, as well as for the World Reach Week, formerly Global Mission Week. Uh, Kevin is a special guest for World Reach Week here at the university and been speaking. And so, rather than spending time on the podcast today hearing a lot of biographical information, which I'm sure Kevin would be able to provide, I would point you to his website. What is your website, Kevin? Internationalproject.org. Okay, great. And I think we have that linked out on the World Reach Week page. And also look at the social media, the chapels that he's done. Those will be available for you. Uh, look and listen to those. But, but today we wanted to take the conversation in a different direction. And Kevin has agreed to a conversation about missions. And it's one that I have been really interested to have for some time now. Uh, And we've had conversations around the university. I think there have even been some magazine articles that have been done. Uh, around the subject of missions and different aspects, and particularly kind of the way that missions has evolved over the years, but Kevin very kindly has come in, and we—he has no idea what I'm going to ask. Yeah, him. I'm
1: very curious, so this is going to be fun, <laughs>
0: <laughs> note free and sort of free form. So I'm really excited too, and we just had some preliminary conversations, and so this would be a great chance for me to get to know you a little better and uh, hear about your mind mind on things. So. You may have no idea where I'm going when I start with this, but Maine, I was should doing-
1: you, should you now say that Kevin's views don't represent the yes. university Yes, okay, at there you all. go, right. Because <laughs> you might want to do that, yes. <laughs> you know what
0: I mean? Uh, insert disclaimer here. <laughs> yes, make a disclaimer the right there. views espoused <laughs> by the host's guests are that's not right. part- That's Or maybe the we host. We do not espoused-
1: <laughs> agree or support his views. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah.
0: unless they work out well with us. That's right, that's right. In which case, they will become full on endorsements. But, so I was, I was doing a little preparation for this and it took me in my mind to search on Google Rez Band. And I don't know if that name rings a bell from the 1980s, but that was sort of early Christian music. Res Band came out in about 1982. I think they were sort of like a, a Christian answer to some of the punk rock music of the era. And I was listening to some of this as I was just thinking about the evolution of so many aspects of culture and especially in evangelical culture, uh, the orthodox world, whatever you want to kind of refer to that as, there have been so many changes over the years in so many different areas. And missions is one of those, it would seem to me. So I'm going to kind of throw out some premises here with you, Kevin, and I'd like to have you kind of react or tune them up or disagree with them. Uh, but, But one of those is it seems to me that over the years, you know, if you're in your 40s, let's say at least, you probably have, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, you have probably a memory of uh, a great deal of, in many churches, missions involvement, missionaries coming to churches, maybe even a week where you had a missions week, certainly a Cairn for years when we were here as students, mm-hmm. uh, we had the missions week where we had to come back a week early from Christmas break, yes, and it was full-on missions for a week, um, and now it's kind of integrated more into the class structure and that sort of thing. But uh, it seems like there's really been an evolution in the church in terms of how those things are viewed and handled, now I know this is a really broad subject, but do you feel like from the standpoint of somebody who's been in missions, do you see such a change, and if so, in what areas,
1: and how do you kind of think through that? Do you mean a change in, in a sense of emphasis like for instance, I mean, even at Karen, you know, there used to be a whole week, everybody would be here and that has, that's a little bit lighter now. Would you talk about, are you talking about that type of thing? Because I see the same thing in churches in a sense where, you know, now I became a believer right before college. So I actually don't have a whole lot okay. of experience yes. growing yeah. up, yeah. but I do remember that we had our church that I was a part of uh, in Philadelphia had, it was a missions week actually, and we would come to church every night and we had flags all around the auditorium and it was just a big thing. And flags are huge. The flag, you have to have, I mean. The flag impact of encircling
0: all of the locations, it was kind of, I guess, a visual reminder, but I hear a lot of people talk about the
1: flags. Well, it's so it's so interesting. It's almost like these people went to classes on like how to hold a missions conference. And they said, okay, 101, first you have to have flags, <laughs> you know what I mean? But no, so the flags are always there. And the flags are always there and and food from different places is always yes, there. So right, they're right. the two things that are part of missions conferences. Yes. But, um. So,
0: yeah, just to interrupt. Yes, that's kind of, I mean, so in a way, is it lighter? Uh, yes, I think you could put it that way. It's de-emphasized maybe. I mean, um, perhaps in some places, uh, people might argue that it's not de-emphasized, it's just emphasized differently. And I wonder if, so how do you see that? Do you feel like it's been de-emphasized? Well, or just I just feel like in
1: churches in general, I think that having, you know, mission conferences, they seem to ha- be happening less and less.
0: Uh, for sure.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. And if they do have them, they've kind of switched from a week-long thing to, you know, we'll have... Two mission or three mission Sundays a year, and I'm going to a church and it's a mission Sunday and the pastors speak. I, maybe they don't feel comfortable having a missionary get up to speak because you know maybe right. they go on too long. Who knows why? Yeah. But I just it does seem, at least from my experience, like it seems like the church is focusing less on missions and more on their own outreach. And, you know, I I don't know what the numbers are in terms of missionary giving, but it, do, it does seem like there's a big difference mm-hmm. across the board. It does to me.
0: So in terms of when you say their own outreach, does that look like their own evangelistic efforts, but it's kind of out of our congregation to our immediate community versus a more global or national or even regional perspective?
1: I think it's probably more to their... Communities, programs within the church, possibly. Yeah, I don't want to over speak because I actually don't know, and I'm sure there's lots of churches who do. You know, there's lots of churches who have incredible hearts for missions, but I'm talking about in general. It just seems like a broad stroke. It just Mm -hmm. seems like um, the focus, at least the way it was in the past, and the 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 way they did it has changed. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems, and I heavily emphasize the word seems, like. There isn't quite the, the enthusiasm toward missions the way there used to be.
0: What would you say are the evidences of
1: that? Um, Again, broad stroke here. Yeah, I think it's it's giving less time to it. I think it's uh, hesitancy to to let missionaries uh, have the you know quote unquote the pulpit. I, I think, think that's
0: th- for sure. The idea of like you could maybe have five minutes to talk about your mission, well, but you're not
1: you're not going to get in the pulpit. Well, we have churches who will say, Oh, can you come and visit? And I'm driving seven hours for three minutes. I mean, that's crazy. It's actually ridiculous. I mean, it's an, like, I'm going to drive seven hours to speak for three minutes. Like, do you know that ahead of time?
0: Yeah. You get three? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: You know, so, I mean, we really push on them. Like, well, are there Sunday school classes? Are they and now? Well, we don't do Sunday, so it's hard now for missionaries because it used to be that there was a Sunday evening service, a Wednesday evening service, right, right. and a Sunday morning service, and then you could do. There would be multiple options, but now most churches don't have. And I'm not saying this is good or bad. The whole Sunday morning Sunday school. Wednesday. I'm not saying it's good or bad. All I'm just saying it's it's no longer the norm. So now missionaries have less of an opportunity. It's more difficult for them to kind of cast vision and get people excited about their mission. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's also been a part of the change. So I think for if a church supports, you know, let's just say they support ten missionaries, how do they give them a space to share the message? I think that might be part of it. I think having far less services and venues like Sunday school make it even more difficult to cast the vision for missions unless the pastor so the the way that our church is set up is the church develops the personality and the passions of the pastor. And I, you know, whether that's good or bad, but they develop the passion. So if the pastor is passionate about missions, then oftentimes the church is passionate about missions. If the pastor is not passionate about missions, and maybe they're passionate about f- feeding the poor, you know, then the church is passionate about feeding the poor. And so the way the church structure is set up now, it's just very hard to have a platform or a, a place where you can cast your vision.
0: Do you feel like there are fewer people pursuing work in full-time missions and seeing more kind of bivocational? And what's your, what's your take on that? Do you feel like, if, if that is the case, is that a positive transition.
1: Yeah. So i I've heard. So I don't know this for sure, but I've heard that the number of people going in as full time missionaries is declining. But I don't actually know the stats on that. I've just heard mm-hmm. that. It would kind of seem, stand to reason, just with sort of anecdotal information. When you say, that, I mean, just what you hear. It about, seems yes, yeah. mm-hmm. and it seems like you know, mission organizations I've heard are having more and more difficult time, you know, mobilizing people and 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 so forth. That being said. I I believe that we do need people who will commit full time to ministry because there's advantages there. But the, the fact is, is that the task in front of us is so big that we need thousands upon thousands of bivocational workers. So and I actually in our ministry as a full time missionary, I'm not a good example Let me explain what I mean. I'm not a really good example for someone who... So our vision is to reach unreached people groups in the city and see simple house churches grow and multiply. And let's just say we reach somebody from Senegal, a Wolof speaker, and he's working a job, and I want him to be a part of the church and go out and do evangelism and lead Bible studies. Well, he could could look at me and say, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say because this is your full-time job. You know what I mean? So we really need bivocational workers who can really model and really show what it means to live a missional, I'll use the word apostolic with a small a, I need to make sure I, it's a small a, you know, apostolic, missional, spiritual, entrepreneurial life of starting Bible studies and starting house churches. So I play an important role as a full-time missionary, but we really need bivocational workers. So I think we, we need far more bivocational workers. It's interesting because our whole paradigm and system isn't really set up for bivocational workers. So they don't exactly know how to step in. And so in international project, we we say, look, we want bivocational workers, but you have to commit 15 hours a week. You know, you have to be trained, you have to be committed to the team, you have to come to the team meetings, you have to be committed to prayer. There's a whole, and and we want you to have significant time where you're engaging people. So it's really hard for us to use a bivocational worker who can give three hours a week. It's it's just not enough. It takes so much more time to try to get them up to speed and to give them the oversight and to kind of guide them. Um, so we ask for 15 hours. Now sometimes that's hard to do if you know your kids in soccer and you have to drive here and there yeah. and you know, you're a part of six different- That's a big
0: commitment, 15 hours a week.
1: 15 hours yeah. is a big commitment. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, really having an impact in a cross-cultural, you know, ministry team in, in a cross-cultural area, you have, to, you have to invest the time. So people say, well, can't you cut it down? I'm like, well, what are we gonna cut down? So right. are we gonna cut down praying? Because we, as a team, we wanna pray for, you know, if we allot two to three hours a week just praying, which we believe is crucial, Okay, so we can't cut that down and we have to have team meetings to talk about what our strategy is going to be and how we're going to work together and how we're going to, you know, function as a team. So that's two hours. And, you know, you have to be trained up in different ministry skills. So, you know, let's just say we you do that two hours a week. So what are we at? We're at like six or seven. And then, you know, you have to spend five to six hours doing ministry. So it's hard. So we we draw a line at 15 hours. Usually.
0: You know, it's interesting to hear you spell that out because I've heard people talk about bivocational ministry a lot, but I haven't really heard somebody lay out, as you just did, kind of a, okay, if you're going to be bivocational, this is what this means. And that sounds like a pretty, it's almost as if, kind of, as we've spoken of people having to pass the call, you know, to missions which, you know, you and I experienced very, very much as students, probably hearing people question, you know, is the call placed on your life for missions and that sort of thing. This sounds very much like a person would really need to be convinced in his or her mind, like, I am being called to this because there's going to be a significant time investment. I'm assuming it's all volunteer, right? The bivocational folks?
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. So it's like, a, this, is, this is truly a ministry, but it is a very significant
1: part of your everyday life. Well, let me tell you, I I personally struggle with the whole call idea. Right. In in all different, whether it's ministry or not, I just struggle with the whole call idea. And I was
0: referring in in terms of language that has been used. Oh yeah, in that's the, the language yeah. that's used, yes. and that's the language. Yeah. Oh,
1: how are you called to ministry? Yeah. I thought so. Well, how are you called by God to be an accountant? Yeah. Right. And how are you? And and your company offered you a position here so you're automatically going to go because you're making more money or is God calling you there could it be that God's calling you to stay here to continue to be on this team and to continue to be a part of this church like we just automatically assume that in the realm of the corporate world that we don't need to be called and we yeah. just go wherever they yeah. tell us to go yeah. and so i think that the call to missionary work is this should be the same as a call into any vocation and they're all they're all to carry the gospel out and to be God's messenger and voice to society. So, I mean, people say that, oh, how did God call you in the ministry? I said, well, how did God call you to be an insurance broker? You know what I mean? It, it's, a, I don't really say it like that because that's a little bit annoying. It right. sounds a little combative. It sounds a yeah. little right. combative. Yeah. But But I get your point. But that's that's because we just have this separation of like laity and clergy, which is not really, I don't think biblical, you know what I mean? So we had, you know, I'll just give one couple. We have uh, this couple who was with us and they felt that God was calling them to move to New York City to be a part of a team reaching unreached people groups. So he left his job in Ohio and he looked for a job in New York City. So he moved... For the mission he wasn't going to be a he wasn't going to go out and raise support him and his wife they weren't full-time he was bivocational he got a job somewhere on wall street but they were spending 15 20 hours a week full members of our team but you know just in a different capacity not only was he able to be a part of our ministry but he was impacting his workplace and that whole community with the gospel and with his life. And I actually think all believers need to be like that. You know what I mean? They're called to ministry through their vocation. And it could be that they're called to ministry and it could be children's ministry through their church. And it could be music ministry or pastoral, who knows? I know a bunch of pastors who are completely bivocational. But so we we wanna have bivocational people on our teams. But I tell people, I said, look, there's a big difference between you being a bivocational missionary and you viewing yourself as a volunteer. Hmm. A volunteer. What is the difference? A volunteer, I just try to define, we spell out yeah. exactly what it means to be a missionary, that you feel that God has called you to this, that you're willing to commit the time and, and so forth. A volunteer usually wants to come, oh, I'll come once a month. Or lick or, envelopes or something like that. Yeah, right? lick envelopes yeah. Or, or, you not, know. Or not right now, licking envelopes. I no, not right now, yeah, right. you don't wanna do it. But, and we, you know, we need we need volunteers, but in terms of our team, we don't necessarily look for volunteers because it's, volunteers are hard. They're hard because they're very transient. They're in and, you know what I mean? They're temporary. They're in and out. And we need volunteers for different things. But as far as teammates, we don't usually call volunteers teammates, but we do call bivocational missionaries teammates. And they're bivocational. And we view them completely as missionaries. And we need people like that. We need a lot more people like that.
0: See, I think that what you just touched on there, in my mind, is one of these examples of how thinking about missions has kind of evolved, because one of the things I, I love is that the root of the word vocation, vocar, I think it is, that means to call. Oh, so there's yeah. this vocalized, so the concept of one's vocation, if you use that term, you're talking about calling, calling. but it seems like along the line, there became this kind of bifurcation between calling to the secular and calling to this quote unquote sacred you know in terms of ministry. Yeah. And so uh the way that you're articulating this is is I think in a very helpful and healthy and I also think very biblically consistent way I might say.
1: Well thank is you. It's sort of
0: <laughs> 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 but but joining you know joining that back to say I mean seriously your question to the person who's Going into business or going into teaching or going into film production in Hollywood, I feel kind of a a pull and a call, and maybe people are sort of defining that in a different way, but that's a very legitimate thing for a a Christian to do, to see a place that needs Christian workers, and even if it's not on paper, it's not a full-time, quote-unquote, ministry career very much a calling, very much a place where we need Christians. And I think in many ways, that's probably what your organization is very much about, right? Well, you
1: know, I'll tell you, the interesting thing is so international projects started and we have all these ministry teams reaching unreached people groups. Now, you know, so I'm the president and as the president, now I'm trying to build this infrastructure to support all of these different works that are going on. So as an organization, now we have finance things that are going on and we have communication things and we have HR things and we have IT things. And so you're supporting the different churches. That are are supporting the our house church network that are supporting the different teams that are supporting the missionaries. We have a team we have a team in Rome. We have a team in Dallas. We have teams all in New York City. We have a, a business as mission in New York City. So there's just a lot of operations stuff that goes on behind that. And my board, the board that I'm you know it's not my board, but the board that I'm a part of they're like, you need an operations manager or a COO. And I'm like, absolutely, I do. And I've interviewed people and we can, we're ready to pay someone, but I don't wanna hire somebody for money. I wanna hire someone who has a vision and a passion for what we're gonna do. I don't, I don't want somebody who just can do operations. I want somebody who, who is called to this vision and this mission it just makes it a world of the difference. Um, so whether it's in this in the secular realm or even operation type stuff or stuff that's not, I want to use the word. care. So like operations, you wouldn't call that like evangelistic ministry. It's finance and stuff like. But even in that, I want someone who feels that they are called to it. You know, we put ads in in papers, we put ads on church classifieds, but. I need to know that someone believes and is called to our mission, and I think that's just, should be the same calling that someone has to take a finance job at wherever. You yeah, know.
0: yeah. I remember growing up, there was a, a gentleman who had been a believer for many, many years, and I remember this very distinctly. We were uh, he was taking me somewhere, uh, some church connection. And he was telling me a little bit kind of about his testimony and how he became a believer. And it was later in his life. And he had a production job, you know, kind of a manual labor sort of thing. But, you know, great job and had been there for years. And he spoke of becoming a Christian. And then he said, but it was it was sort of too late for me to go into ministry. So I kind of had to stay where I was. And I just was thinking about, you think about production lines and the number of individuals there who, who have The same needs that every human, every other place in the world has, and what an opportunity that would be to be a believer, to be salt and light, and to have an impact. But again, not to belabor the point, but it seems like that is kind of a perspective that many have transitioned out of, that it is somehow sort of subpar to be a Christian, but not be in full-time ministry, but rather this concept of calling. I always think of that story
1: you feel, you feel like it's actually we're moving away from that idea of the do. Of, of this of the uh, separation between the laity and clergy clergy
0: I yeah I do I do but then I think that that might bring us back in conversation to okay so now we're back to we have a decrease in interest in missions so maybe we've had some helpful corrective in terms of uh, the, the theological aspects of this and what it means to be called but then on the other hand, we seem to have less of an interest in missions. So if, in fact, this corrective has happened in terms of calling, are we seeing now some, is it, is it maybe a pendulum swinging too far in one direction scenario where now people are just, they're not thinking of, of that at all as, as something. In the past, it was too much. Is it too little now?
1: Maybe? It's interesting because I have a, a friend, Denny Spitters, who wrote a book called when, um, I think it's called, I, I don't get the, I know what it's about. I just the yeah. title is something like when missions is everything or okay. when everything is missions okay. something like that. And you know, one of the good things that churches are trying to do is they're trying to say, "Hey, we're all missionaries. We're all missionaries. Go out there and reach your mission field." And and that's a really positive thing. On the other side, in some ways that may it may decrease, like missions to unreach people, groups, and foreign missionaries, and and the the idea of missions. You have to go learn another, you learn another language and learn their culture and become a student of their culture as a way to engage these people. Like you die to your own self. So it's possible. I don't know the answer to that, but in his book, he argues that when everything becomes missions, then we actually lose missions to you know the the real biblical understanding of being sent out and to cross cultural ministry and so forth. So it's just an interesting discussion. I do think we need whether we call it missions or not, we need I think a couple of things. One we need everybody to view their vocation as their calling for ministry and that we're called to to reach our neighbors and community and to have this ministry mindset. Everybody has to have that. And I think that we, I think in terms of global missions, I think people need to to understand that there are what are called unreached people groups out there. Large numbers. L- large numbers Apparently. of unreached people groups. In some of my research, I was finding some statistics on that. Right. Like, so, Huge. I mean, and for people who, so an unreached people group, the, the, old, the older kind of definition was any people group, you know, ethnic, linguistic, cultural group that had less than 2% of their population were believers. And oftentimes the number is far less than that, like less than a percent of the population are believers and they don't have enough believers to actually, they need outside help to see the gospel spread throughout their society. So, you know, there are large numbers of unreached people groups around the world and I think we need to think about that and be focused on that. And there's very little money. Last last statistic I heard is, you know, like that half of the world's population are people from unreached people groups, something like that. And like out of every dollar, like a nickel goes to seeing the gospel taken to these unreached people groups. So I really do think we need to have a global perspective of missions and seeing the gospel taken to the ends of the earth, as we see in Matthew 28. Yeah, I think we need to foster that one. So I think we need both. I think we need to foster the idea of, yeah, we're all missionaries in the sense of we need to go out and share the gospel and engage our communities. And we're called regardless of our vocation to do that. And we also need to understand that, look, there's there's a world out there where people go their entire lives and haven't heard the name of Jesus or haven't heard any clear or remotely clear presentation of Jesus as, as Savior and so I think we need to have both yeah and, and it it's possible that missions as in terms of the global vision may have decreased and I'm I'm using I'm, I'm really using words and because I'm not 100% sure but right. it seems it feels yeah. Yeah. like there's a change and I'm just I'm not sure if it's just because the way we used to do it is now different um, but mm-hmm. it feels like there's um, missionaries are having a harder time raising support they're having a harder time, mobilization to mission organizations is dropping. So these are the type of indicators I think show that missions may be preached less and and highlighted less in the church. Okay, so here's another aspect.
0: Again, anecdotally, one might look at evangelical culture and say the kind of eschatological aspects have become less sort of popular, written about in people's uh, minds? If you were to kind of survey uh, maybe the most popular books that uh, people who profess to be Christians are reading. Again, I don't have statistics on this, but my sort of gut sense is that fewer of those are related to sort of end times or even just sort of general eschatological themes. Is it, is it possible that that a time period where those things were very, very central in people's thinking. Could that have propelled
1: aspects of missions?
0: Because people were sort of focused on
1: the end and final judgment and those sorts of things? It's really interesting. That's a great, that's a really good question. You know, I've heard that in the 20th century, really um, churches that were more dispensational and came into that whole dispensational eschatological framework were the drivers of Overseas missions in the twentieth century, so there might be very much to that, and just this strong belief and proclamation that without Christ there is an eternal hell, and I think it's possible that in the past that was clarified more strongly yeah, and we brought to
0: more uh, the forefront of discussion, perhaps
1: right. And I think maybe it's not as um, popular to talk that way, and and so maybe this passion for reaching the lost who will be separated from, you know, from Christ, maybe people aren't developing the same urgency. Now it's interesting because I, I believe, I believe that without Christ, you're going to spend eternity. You know what I mean? And yet I also, my belief has also changed a little bit too. And you can challenge me on this, but you know,
0: that's why we're we're here. That's why we're
1: here. Yeah. Yeah, So, you know, I used to, I'm uh, probably more Calvinistic in my theology. And I used to believe that, oh, if I don't share the gospel with this person, they're going to die and go to hell. Now, I would say it this way. Now, I don't think of it that way anymore. Now, I think if I don't share the gospel with this person, God's going to send one of his faithful servants along who will open his mouth or open her mouth and share the gospel. But God has a plan for that person. And I think so many times we are so afraid to live out loud and be who we are and speak up and engage people spiritually. And we're just passive so much. And we sit on the sideline and we see other people have who have so many opportunities of leading people to the Lord. And we say, why doesn't that happen to me? And it's just because we're not engaging people spiritually. So, you know, look i believe people have to put their faith in Jesus christ they have to have this relationship you know for salvation if i don't bring it to them god's going to bring somebody else to bring it to them you know what i mean and then they're going to respond one way or another and that's gonna you know it's almost like sharing the gospel out of
0: faithfulness instead of fear
1: totally and I think the other thing is learning how one of the things I was talking about this week is part of our the problem with traditional gospel presentations you know when i was First became a believer. I learned, you know, they had evangelism explosions. So you learn this presentation, and let me just say, it's good to learn presentations because they help you to think through and present things logically and explain the gospel in a logical way. But the problem with the presentations is getting to it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you you learn in these in these presentations. Oh, these little awkward questions that try to jump into it. But you know, basically, you, you know, people who go through these, you know, these trainings. of them never share the gospel because they don't know how to actually get into a conversation where it comes up. And one of the things I'm talking about this week is learning how to turn up our spiritual volume to just engage everybody spiritually because we're spiritual people. God has called us to be spiritual people. All through scripture, we talk about, it talks about talking about God all day long. In Deuteronomy six, it says, "You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. And it says, talk about him when you wake up in the morning, talk about him when you walk along the road, talk about him when you come back, when you lie down. And it's this idea of talking about God and our culture has basically taught us to keep our mouth shut and we've obeyed. And I think if we just learn to engage people spiritually, we're gonna see that so many people are spiritually open and receptive, and and it'll, it'll easily lead us to people saying, oh, really, well, tell me more about that. And then you say, well, let me tell you what happened in my life, and you share a testimony of how you came to Christ, or you share a testimony of how God really spoke to you or met you when your wife or husband or mother was dying of cancer. And then it just opens up opportunities to share the gospel gospel presentations are good but unless we learn to turn up our spiritual volume i think most people will never share the gospel we've become a little bit more accustomed to talking about spiritual things when we're in church but what happens is we go to our neighbors and we turn that off so at church we'll say oh yeah i'll pray for you or wow god really taught you something or god really taught me this or we just talk about god at church or with our believing friends when we're with our unbelieving friends we turn it off and that's horrible. That That is because we're afraid to be who we we really are. You know what I mean? And if and because we're afraid we probably that they're going to be disliked either. We're afraid they're going to dislike us. And the, the truth is I actually don't believe they will. I don't believe they will. I think that they'll, and I actually think the harvest is plentiful. I mean, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. I actually think that verse right there where Jesus said that that's probably, If we believe that, that would change our entire posture in engaging people. But we actually believe, oh, the harvest isn't really that plentiful. People aren't interested. They're not gonna wanna talk about this. But if we just turn up our spiritual volume and be who God has called us to be, I think we're gonna find people all around us who are spiritually open. Let me tell you a quick little story. Can I tell you? Sure. So I just got done talking about this at a church, right? And I uh, just talked about, talking about spiritual things and you know when someone's struggling say hey how can i pray for you and things like that and how it opens up doors so i just got done talking about this and i'm driving home on the way home from talking and the pastor calls me a friend of mine he actually a karen graduate as well he calls me he said guess what guess what i said what he said a guy who was just at the church who heard this message went home and his neighbor was picking up some sticks in his yard they share their neighbors and they there's no fence so he was a little bit in his yard and picking up sticks so the guy from the church decided to go out there and he just decided to engage him and he said hey you know i forget his name hey joe how's it going and he's like oh fine and then the believer says this he goes hey is there any way i can pray for you and he says the guy started to break down and cry And he started to sob on the lawn. He said, he said, wow, you know, my wife just left me. I don't have a relationship with my kids. And he just opened his heart up and this guy was able to pray for him and just begin to just engage him spiritually, you know, and begin to share testimony and the gospel with him. And he said, I went for 10 years and never talked to this guy about anything spiritually for 10 years. And all I had to do was say, "Hey, Joe, how can I pray for you?" And he just saw. I actually get I get emotional. just he actually broke down sobbing on his lawn. And all he had to do was say, "Hey, how can I pray for you? But we're so afraid of how people are going to reject us. And because of that, even though the harvest is plentiful, there are thousands of people all around who are spiritually receptive. We're so afraid and we miss opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And I just think the church really needs to learn to turn up their volume without fear. And they need to do it without awkwardness and just be who we are. Talk to your your secular neighbors or your unbelieving friends, just the way you would with people at church and live out loud and you know, I don't know how we got on this topic. Yeah, do,
0: yeah. no, that's. Do, well, I, uh, I think I, I went on a tangent, but no, that's a, that's okay. I, uh, but I, but I did want to bring back to something you said earlier that's been lingering in my mind as we've been talking, and that is related to uh, the structure of house churches and that kind of thing. So this is a little bit of a shift, but talk a little bit about how do you feel about house churches and people planting those, and in in the context of. Again, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I know that churches report a variety of struggles with, and of course pre-COVID too, uh, but attendance, engagement, involvement from people, people not feeling like they are connected, they're not being fed, uh, a whole variety of things. And then we have some interesting things happening in terms of the size of churches. You know, there, is, there, are, there are many churches that have become very, very large, you know, in the thousands that have sort of unique challenges and benefits and that kind of thing. I think I heard a statistic once recently from one of our alumni, which was kind of shocking, was about the, the percentage of churches that are actually 300 members or fewer it, you know, was way larger than one would think. You yeah, know, it's actually, so,
1: I've heard it's something like okay. 90% of churches are, are 200 people and less.
0: Right. So the vast majority are actually small, and yet, it, you know, maybe depending where you are geographically, you're familiar with sort of much larger churches. Anyway, so there's that kind of broad uh, church sort of question. And then there are individuals who are starting house churches and doing things kind of differently. So is that part of your, your ministry and your work and your mission to see people plant house churches? And is it, do you suggest people do that in areas where there are local churches nearby that are gospel centered and that kind of thing? How, how is that a part of
1: No your you're really opening a can of worms here. <laughs> well, that's what we said we were going to do. Though. All right. All right. So, <laughs> so I've been a part of a house church for the last 20 years. And we're a part of a network of house churches in New York City. Well, let me say this. We have a principle in our ministry that the more simple something is, the more reproducible it is. The more complex it is, the less reproducible. So the more simple, the more reproducible, the more complex, the less reproducible. So what we're trying to do when it comes to church is we're trying to ask this question. What is the simplest, most basic essence of what it means to be a biblical church without adding all this other stuff to it. And we're trying to live that out. The simplest, most basic essence. Because the more simple it is, the more reproducible. The bottom line is the church in America is, you know, they say it's in decline. You know what I mean? But I actually believe we can see a movement. Well, let me share, let me share with you a quick story. 1948, Mao Tung comes to the podium in Tiananmen Square. And he stands up and really at that point, Christianity was in China. There were missionaries there. There were some churches there. There were uh, church leaders. The church was growing, but it was growing very slowly. 1948, Mao comes to the podium. From that point on, Christianity becomes illegal. It was really like a precursor to the Cultural Revolution. Anyway, missionaries, uh, all the missionaries were kicked out of China. The church buildings were confiscated. Church pastors and leaders were either killed or put in prison. And the missionaries who were kicked out thought to themselves, if we're ever able to get in again, we're gonna to have to start all over because everything is being destroyed. Christianity is being destroyed in China. Five years goes by, the door is closed. They don't know what's happening. 10 years goes by, the door is closed. They don't know what's happening. 15, after a couple decades, some of the missionaries who were there before were able to get back in just to see if there was anything left of the church, you know, of these brothers and sisters that they had known. When they came back in, they were completely and utterly shocked at what they saw. Not only did the church continue to exist, but the church exploded like wildfire. Like tens of thousands of people had been baptized. Thousands of churches had been started. And there was this like movement of churches throughout China. And that's really interesting, you know, because here you... Wait a second. When you have the missionaries and you have the church leaders and pastors and the buildings, three of the things that we think are crucial for the expansion of the church and the building of God's kingdom, you have them and the church is crawling and then they're taken away and boom, it explodes. And when you look at this from a missiological standpoint, or even in, uh, an ecclesiastical standpoint, uh, for ecclesiology, you have to at least say, hmm, I wonder why that is. Why is it that when the, the pastors and the buildings and the missionaries were there, it was crawling, and when they were taken away, it exploded? And I actually, so Tertullian, Church Father Italian said this. He said, "What well, the blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church, basically in persecution because people are dying for their faith, it causes, you know, uh, expansion. I actually think that that's p- possible. I think there's, I have another theory and it's basically that under persecution, the church is forced back to the simplest, most basic essence of what it means to be to the church and it spreads. And what was happening is the church was forced back to biblical community. They had to meet in homes where they where they were experiencing all of the one another's of scripture they had this deep spiritual intimacy and community that they didn't have in rows and now because all of the church leaders were arrested and put in prison now people had to step up and start using their spiritual gifts and the priesthood of all believers started to function and people are like they saw that wow god's using me they weren't just sitting in a pew listening to someone, but now they're using their gifts, and the church is forced back to this biblical essence and the simplest form of what it means to be the church, and it explodes. And so I really think house church is a structure that enables everybody to be active and for biblical community to thrive the way we see in the New Testament. So like you look at the New Testament, and I think the New Testament says far more about how we should live as a community than it does about teaching. Like, in terms of go and teach and teach, you know, we have theology for sure, all scriptures that, but in terms of instruction on how the church should function, it says far more about how we should interact with one another you look through scripture there's this phrase that it says about 70 times in the new testament it's the phrase one another love one another be devoted to one another humble yourself before one another uh speak psalms hymns and spiritual songs to one another you know be patient with one another bear with one another on and on and on and on it goes about how we should relate as a community and i really feel like um we've really missed the community side of what the church is called to be. So yeah, I'm a part of a house church and I really think that that's where the gospel is displayed really powerfully. I mean, look at Ephesians. Um, Ephesians is all about this new type of society, this new type of community that God's creating and he's drawing the Jew and the Gentile together into this new type of community. And it says there that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God before the principalities and powers of this dark, evil realm, how does it do it? Does it do it because we listen to a a really good biblical? No, biblical teaching each week? No, it does it because now these people who were utter enemies, are now brought together to love each other. So in the church, there's this new type of society, this new type of community that you can't find anywhere else where race is no longer an issue. There's no division by race. There's no division by socioeconomics. There's no division by gender. It's We become a new society where there's devotion to one another and love for one another that you can't find anywhere else in the world. So th- would
0: you say that that's exclusive to the, to house churches or you're just saying that you feel like it's it's created it's begun
1: better there that's a good that's a great qu- you know so our church structures really influence how we function right all church structures do there's no neutral church structures so i think certain church structures foster it more and certain church structures inhibit it so i think when you meet in circles that fosters community it doesn't guarantee it It fosters it. When you meet in rows, when that becomes your functional definition of church, rows, that doesn't foster community. So then you therefore have to have something outside of that thing that you call church. Now, you might say, well, no, it's all church. No, I understand that. But in people's minds, Sunday morning from 11 to 12, that's church, and then we have small groups. So in the house church paradigm, house church Community, I should say, is inherent in in the experience of church. It's not optional. It's not an appendage to real church. In the traditional church... You, it's not inherent in what the definition of church is. If you want community, you have to be a part of a small group. Now, the good thing is a lot of churches are really pushing small groups, and I think it's great. And a lot of churches are saying, if you want to experience real biblical community, if you want to experience, in a sense, real biblical church, you have to be a part of a small group. I think that's really great when the church says that. But I think that, yeah, so we we really do house church, and we we do we try to live out this biblical community. Simply, we try to... Live out the priesthood of all believers. We try to live out what we see in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 in terms of how the church functions. It says, What then shall we say, brothers? You know, Paul just went through all these corrections and all these, you know, critiques of the church. And then he, in summary, he says, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you get together? everyone has a teaching or a hymn or a song or and and it goes through so everybody comes prepared to minister to use their gifts and it, so it's just it's a, it's a much different experience so yeah i i again i uh, what was your original question well that's this is one full circle conversation because
0: we started all the way with missions and the change of that and to but yeah so it was about uh, just the distinction between house churches and um local congregations. Legacy churches and, and, that and kind large of thing. churches and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah, just exploring that. And, uh, you know, if, I, I would imagine, too, you have some people who are serving in areas where it's not an option, right? Like, I mean, the way for them to gather with fellow believers is in a home be, by by reason of persecution, Absolutely. by reason of funding or, or whatever, but maybe more imp- importantly, persecution, that, you know, you have to do this covertly.
1: That's the only way to do it. That's the only way to do it. And so actually that's how we started doing house church. We started doing house church initially because we were reaching unreached people groups and they were going back to places where they couldn't open up a first Baptist church of Iran or Tehran or, you know what I mean? They couldn't do that. So we had to give them a structure of church that they could actually reproduce in some hostile environment. But through that whole process, we started to experience and see a different way of doing church which when you look at it, you know, you look at the early church, they didn't have buildings for th- hundreds of years, hundreds, not like 10 years, not 20. They didn't have buildings for hundreds of years. The whole New Testament church, the what we see in scripture is they met in homes, in small groups, and they gathered together and they had a meal and they were devoted to each other. There was high biblical community and intimacy with one another. And so not only do I think that gives us a deeper, experience of what the body of Christ is called to be, but it's also much more reproducible because every culture in the world comes together in small communities like this around meals, and they gather. And so we wanna see families come to Christ and then see churches start it and see other families come to Christ and so forth. You don't even need like money for buildings, you know? So yeah, we started out at looking at house church as a strategy. And now it became a biblical picture of what we think church should be. And look, whenever we add our prep, you know, add stuff to the biblical definition of what the church is, it just becomes more complex. And we have to think about that when when we think about fostering uh, the expansion of, of churches. It's a great subject for another podcast. Biblical definition of church. That would what be what is it and what isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: So two things maybe to close down our time here. One is I'm I'm just thinking. Uh, is there a book that you would recommend somebody who is, well, I, I was going to say kind of putting a person who wants to learn more about missions or something, but let me put it this way. What is a book related to missions? Just, it doesn't have to be a book that the subject was miss, missions, but maybe sort of really affected your thinking on a lot of these subjects that you would suggest people check out.
1: Okay, so, well, let me just say in terms of house church books, I generally say be careful of house church people because a lot of times they're not biblically accurate and they're a little bit like crazy out there and oftentimes and this is the worst type house church people who are house church people because they're disgruntled with the church be careful because they can they can be somewhat dangerous we have to make sure our understanding of church is biblical and there's examples of it there so i just want to say that about house church books in terms of missions This is an older book, and it's not an easy read, but it's called The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church by Roland Allen. It's a great book. It gives a lot of principles for multiplication and movement. Um, Spontaneous Expansion of the Church by Roland Allen. Also, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours by Roland Allen. That's key. One book that is kind of key, that kind of is helpful to understand our methodology when it comes to church planting is miraculous movements, miraculous movements. And it's really about disciple making movements and church planting movements. Um, so it's a book that gives examples of that and it gives some methodology. Um, now there's a difference between methodology and theology. So I'm not saying that everything in the book is set, I'm not saying the Bible says do it this way. So I, we have this equip training where we have people come for 10 months to go through training. And I, it's important that we make a distinction between methodology and theology, because sometimes we do things that's, that are a methodology where we're not saying that this is the only way and this is what the Bible says to do, and yet it's a best practice and missions. So I think the discovery Bible study method and what we're doing there has been considered a best practice. Miraculous Movements helps explain that a little bit. So they would be three books, but uh, Roland Allen's two books were really, really impactful to me.
0: Okay. And to wrap things up here, I, I kind of like to leave these times with a, a chance to sort of inspire people. So you literally have a microphone in front of you. I do. So <laughs> <laughs> Speak to the uh, average, the average run-of-the-mill believer these days. We've talked about maybe trends in, in missions and how things have maybe changed in some ways, maybe in others haven't. But what is it that you would say to inspire people to how they ought to think about missions, uh, what message would you like to see conveyed to them? Here's your chance to do that. Good, well, so
1: I to would whoever's say, listening. Though, yes, so. I would say, yeah, whoever's listening. I would say, you know, in the past, our, our general paradigm of missions was you have to cross an ocean. It, it's called a saltwater missiology. You know what I mean? You have to cross saltwater. But the fact is, is that now God is also bringing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people from the very nations we're trying to reach, from unreached people groups right to us. And he's giving us an opportunity to reach them. And so like in my neighborhood, there's 100,000 West African Muslims. So International Project is about reaching unreached people groups and missions. Look, we, we need to send missionaries overseas. They have advantages that we don't, but God is also bringing the nations here and there's an incredible ministry that you can have reaching the nations here as well. Check out (laughs) internationalproject.org. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Kevin, for
0: joining us. And uh, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for being our World Reach speaker this week. If you want more information, certainly visit the website, check out the social media links and the website links to Kevin's speaking to the students. And there's been a whole spate of things going on this week with the students and opportunity to speak. So uh, appreciate you being with us.
1: Thank you so much. It was great being here.